G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Uh, you see, uh, just recently I att- attempted to read the enormous, um, supposedly definitive biography of Vincent van Gogh. Um, it runs to something like a thousand pages. It is ridiculously thick. It took me several goes of um, getting it out of the library and I still didn't make it. Um, or at least I haven't finished it yet. Perhaps I'll, um, I'll get there. That's another story. Along the way, I was particularly taken by this description of the art world across Europe um, in the late 1800s. And that's what I want to share with you. Uh, so up until the likes of Monet and Renoir and of, of course, you know, with the water lilies and Van Gogh with his starry night and all of the rest, um, art was predominantly, here's my butchering of art history, Alex, uh, predominantly about realism. Things had to look real. Uh, like as they actually are, more captivated by photos, if you like, rather than sort of um, impressions of what something is like. So you could measure the goodness of art by its semblance to what that art was supposed to be depicting, if you get what I mean. So then along comes Impressionism, late 1800s. Just have a listen to how the artistic establishment saw this alleged development, this new thing, this emerging pinnacle as it saw itself of the art world. So here we go, this is from Nifayan 75, and the art world was under attack by a rebellious cadre of young painters who styled themselves the Anonymous Society, but whose enemies had stuck them with a range of dismissive labels, including Impressionalists, Impressionists, and my favourite, Lunatics. They claimed to see the world in a new way, making the improbable argument that their brushwork captured images in a more scientific way, so that the wrote one of the few critics who supported them. They even claimed to paint light, although they rejected the use of dark shadows, uh, which was the traditional means of rendering the play of light on objects. They called their cheerful, airy paintings little fragments of the mirror of universal life, or simply impressions. Claims that Impressionism represented the next wave in art were met with catcalls and guffaws, from most of the Paris art world, still deeply invested in the Renaissance academics of drawing and modelling. They called the new works crimes, absurdities and mud splashes and accused radicals like Claude Monet of conducting a war on beauty. Outraged editorialists compared the new works uh, to that of, quote, a monkey who might have got hold of a box of paints. Sheer lunacy, uh, after one of the French newspapers. A horrifying spectacle. The storm finally broke in March 1875. Desperate for money, a group of the upstarts, including Monet and Renoir, arranged to sell some of their controversial works at the city's central auction house. The event sparked a near riot of outrage. Spectators howled insults at the art and at the artists. As each work came to the block, they mocked it. And then when it sold for pennies, 50 francs for a Monet landscape, which was like 10 bucks in the day, for a Monet landscape, 
They cheered in derision. That's for the frame, one yelled. The auctioneer feared that the frenzied crowd would, quote, take me off to a lunatic asylum, he recalled. They treated us like imbeciles. So ugly did the event become that the organisers had to call the police to prevent the melee from breaking out into fist fights. We think we live in like a, a city with a controversial gallery, don't we? Hmm. Paris. Uh, two months later, Vincent arrived in Paris. By then, the firestorm had spread to nearly, to nearly every corner of the insular, gossipy art world. Uh, friends, uh, what has that got to do with Romans chapter 9? Uh, what may seem like an absurd, artless, pathetic, sad, backward step, you know, when things have come so far... May I put it to you that France in 1875 was very much like the Judaism of the first century as the gospel broke in uh, to the world of the first century. So the old school was entrenched Judaism. The new school was the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The old school saw Jesus as a dangerous, hollow departure from all that was precious and good and would shipwreck the standing of good men and women before the throne of God, the new school proclaimed that Jesus was precisely where the glorious, beautiful history of God's work was always headed. It was the progression that had to happen. And far from being a worthless hiccup in the flow of history, Jesus stands as the answer from God to our shared human plight. Welcome to Romans chapter 9. How about we pray together as we turn to the text now. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, as we take a journey back in time uh, today in your word to a different age, to a controversy that may sound strange to some of us, to an alien set of issues, may we yet find ourselves and find our God once again in truly arresting brilliance and wonder. Uh, restore us and remind us and revive us as children of the God of history, please, the God of love, the God who has always meant good and has resolutely laboured through the years to bring those intentions and those promises to spectacular fruition. So renew, please, our faith in Jesus this very morning and for Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. Uh, the question runs something like this. So, dear Paul, Apostle of Jesus, uh, author of this letter to the church in Rome, what happens? You know, we've been following you chapter after chapter after chapter now. What happens if we walk away from our old ways, walk away from living our lives under the rule of God's ancient law to Israel? Uh, if, as you say, we're not a religion of law, but a religion of grace, and of faith, and of forgiveness, and of confidence in the love of God for us, are you saying that we're starting from scratch? That we're walking away from the historic works of God? Are we a new religion out here in the first century world, Paul? Do you honestly think that God has broken ties with his people once and for all, and forged off in some new direction, decided to bust out with a new approach, try something fresh, give up on everything that came before. Is that what you're saying, Paul? To put it in terms that maybe we might put it, is Paul saying, with this new arrival of Jesus and all of the rest, 
that the Christian faith is a religion without any historic roots. That everything that came beforehand was dated and silly, perhaps even sinful and misguided. Is Christianity an ultimately rootless religion that just kind of dangles in the middle of history from the life of Jesus? Or does it have roots all the way down through history as an historic and ancient, uh, through the documented record of God's acts since the very beginning? Which is it? Because Paul, you seem, or Jesus seems, to be taking this whole thing in a different direction, in a strange direction, in a place to a place that we didn't expect it to go. Uh, very much like the Impressionists in the 1800s. Crazies, dangerous, lunatics. Friends, does our faith have roots all the way down through history? I think that's important to us. Does it have roots in the ancient work of God as far back as we can trace it? Now, the opening paragraph of Romans chapter 9 makes it clear that Paul believes your religion has roots, Christian. Our gospel stands in that ancient tradition, in the tradition of the real work of God. If only my countrymen had the eyes to see it. Sadly, though, it is they who have lost the plot. Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. Could we read that together? where Paul, in this impassioned plea, says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, Paul's a Jew, you see, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. These are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Christian, your religion has roots. That's what we're going to explore today. It's an ancient religion stitched into the very workings of God since the very beginning. Uh, And your religion has roots for God's saving activity, Paul makes three points. Firstly, was never about entitlement, but always about personal promises. Secondly, it was never mean-spirited, but it always came from a merciful heart. And thirdly, finally, it was never about finding the perfect few, but saving even those who are far-flung by faith Uh, If you didn't catch all those, that's okay. I'll remind you of them on the way through. But do you realise in your own faith, Christian, that your Jesus is the culmination of God's saving work since the very beginning? Is that an anchor for you when you feel small in the world, when your life seems short? The Jesus, that your faith... Your faith is in the one who is the culmination of God's saving work since the very beginning. Firstly then, God's plans have never been about privileged entitlement, but the personal promise of God. And here perhaps we miss uh, risk, at least, missing the force of what Paul's up against in his day. Uh, Did God promise, like really promise, that Israel would be his people? We read something of that in Exodus 33, that Israel would be his And Paul says, yes, he did. He promised himself to Abraham's children, but never in a way that would justify entitlement. God owes me. He's my God. And by the way, he's not yours. Romans chapter 9, verse 8. Let's pick it up from there. 
uh, halfway through a paragraph there, verse 8. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time, I will return, this is God speaking to Abraham, and Sarah will have a son. Now, the unspoken piece of the picture there, you probably remember it from Genesis chapter 16, is that Abraham had two sons, didn't he? Do you recall? So there was Ishmael uh, through Hagar and Isaac born to Sarah. The sons of Abraham were never entitled to the promises of God, even though God promised himself to Abraham. God promised to save through Abraham and his descendants, but not in a way that ever allowed those sons to stand in a place of entitlement. The very same thing in the next generation, because Sarah had Isaac. What happened to Isaac? Isaac grew up and he had twins. That makes it even more complicated. Romans chapter 9, verse 10, keep reading with me. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, uh, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Isn't Paul asking you Jewish brothers, has it ever been the case since the earliest times, since we began as a people, you think back to our oldest patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has it ever been the case that birthright entitles you to a saved spot among the people of God. And just remember here, the backdrop perhaps is the entire non-Jewish world. Do I deserve a spot in God's saving plan and they don't purely because I have the right parents and they were born outside the people of God? No, what do we see here? We see God promising himself to Abraham and then taking hold of the life of Isaac, one of Abraham's sons, and then choosing that scoundrel Jacob, (laughs) remember his life, though he could equally have chosen Esau. Now, in context, I don't don't think it means that God actively despised Esau, uh, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated, uh, or that filthy Ishmael. Uh, It's just comparative. I set my love on one. Uh, Yes, that means the other was rejected. I didn't choose the others. The others, let's say this clearly, uh, who were legitimate descendants of Abraham, just like the rest of the Jews. Now, friends, uh, just permit me a very brief comment here. Does this then undermine your grounds for confidence or hope that we might have for our kids, either when they're very young or as we raise them in the Lord? Does this undermine our confidence? If God chooses this one and not that one? I'll just say this. I think Paul, we need to note the context here. He's going after, as I read it, an entitlement and an arrogance amongst the Jewish people. And if I think I'm saved because I'm entitled as a member of this church or with parents like mine 
or because of how I've been raised, then absolutely, look out, friends. But notice this, God committed himself before Jacob was even born, before Sarah had given birth, before anyone had done anything good or bad and chose God in their lives. No, friends, I think we're right to lean on and trust in and entrust ourselves to the promise of God, even for our families, not to lead us to complacency and arrogance and entitlement in how we raise our kids or conduct ourselves, but for our comfort and in view of his faithfulness. Which leads to our second point, the saving history of our God has never been marked by mean-spiritedness, but by his merciful heart. Christian, in Jesus, you find the same merciful heart of God to you that has been shown amongst his people since the very beginning. Now, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read quite a large slab here. Uh, could I ask you to keep your eye out for something, though, as we, um, as we go through? Because I think it's a passage where we tend to get sidetracked. We tend to, you know, we get down to Pharaoh and he's hardened by God and we go, oh, wait a second, we, our mind runs off on that. Poor Pharaoh, he seems such a top bloke, really. I'm sure he would have chosen God had God not hardened him. We go off on that sort of a tangent. I think Paul sees it the other way around. And now test me on this as we read through it. It's what I want you to keep your eye out for. I think Paul is saying, it's not that God is being unjust. It's actually extraordinary that God shows mercy and compassion and makes something special out of something that was frankly not very special and bears with patience those who are even so hostile to him and loves the people who are so resolutely unlovely. I think that's the emphasis of this passage, if we could just note that on the way through. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Have you got it there? Romans 9 and verse 14. What then should we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people. I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Now, brothers and sisters, and I say this to teenagers who are still figuring out their faith, 
and I say this to the elderly who have, have wrestled with this very topic for many years, don't we get ourselves caught up from time to time, snagged, stuck on God-hardening Pharaoh uh, or on uh, clay fashioned, as it were, only for common use, uh, on the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And we imagine that in every case that God's describing uh, poor, innocent, otherwise lovely individuals were it not for the miserly intervention of God. Is that where our minds go sometimes? And the reason our minds go there is because we think of our own children and we think of our siblings, we think of our parents, we think of our loves, we think of our friends. And it kind of breaks us to read this stuff, I think. Paul absolutely believes that God is sovereign, in control, and in some strange way, he orchestrates all things. The good God orchestrates all things, even the opposition that rails against him and has railed against him down through history. Now, just tease that out for a moment. That means that when Jesus went to the cross, yes, God even orchestrated the mocking, the good God orchestrated the mocking and the jeering and the nails and the blood and his own son's loss of life. Isaiah 53 says it pretty plainly, verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, referring to the Lord Jesus. Friends, let's not speak about our good God as if he were some disinterested deity, thoroughly unaffected and removed from all of the nastiness of this world. The marvel is that God reaches into our world and he reaches into our hearts and he reaches into our hardness and our unloveliness and he says to you, you are my loved one. You are my child. I will patiently bear with the hurtful and I will even harden some, but I'll make something special of you. That has been our God's way again and again through history. Which leads finally, not to the saving of just a perfect few, but a salvation that is flung far and wide and is by faith, even for you. Now, uh, Paul, I think in this, in this last section that we're going to read, he does what I, what I think is a bit of a judo flip because it sounds at first like he's saying, look, under the circumstances, given how messed up things are, look, it turns out God only does manage to save a few. It's, that's the way the logic seems to run for a moment. Sorry, guys, my countrymen, my beloved Jews, I wish it were different, but it's all he chose to manage, a paltry remnant, a perfect few. But then Paul flips it and says, actually, the reason, my dear Jewish brothers and sisters, that you think it's so few is because you only really care about the Jews around you, don't you? The few. Look again, because God never set out to save one perfect little nation and only a few from that. He set out to save the world and to fling his salvation far. Not a perfect few, but the far flung and by faith. 
So pick it up with me at verse 27, if we could please. Verse 27 of Romans chapter 9. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand, only a remnant will be saved. Do you see? Now come down to verse 30, though. Verse 30, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles, that means the non-Jewish world, everyone else, all of the peoples of all of the other nations, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, friend, if you're here at church this morning, maybe don't come to church very often, maybe do, actually, but these are the things that you chew over anyway. You're wondering, evaluating, weighing up, Why should I place my hope and my life in the hands of Jesus? He seems a strange character from history, a a little man from a backwater town, a troubled part of the world, who was run out of town by critics in his own day, mocked, worthless, a pretender, ultimately strung up on a cross. Can I put it to you like this? In Jesus, you meet the God who means to save who means to save not those who claim to be entitled to his salvation, but any who take hold of his promise. He is the God who means to save, not with a mean-spiritedness, a miserliness, but a merciful heart that knows what we're like, knows exactly what we're like, and he came for us and to love us and to make us his people. In Jesus, you meet a God who means to save not just the perfect few from history, but the far-flung and by faith, even you this morning. And he is the God we have seen since the very beginning. So will you, will we stumble at the name of Jesus because it's too new or too strange or we wish God had done it another way? Or will we marvel at the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord? Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven, when the gospel broke into our world with the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was something truly new, life from the grave, new life. And yet it was something woven into your ways since the very beginning. This magnificent work of your artistry that took the brutality and evil of our world and yet turned it for the good and for the salvation of a hard and thankless world, even our hard and thankless hearts. Father God, may we learn to marvel at your ways and your craft and your mercy, your love, your tenderness towards us, your patience and your promise-keeping and compassion down the ages. Lord, grant us to cling to Christ, that rock, that safe place for us. Father, we plead with you for our loved ones and for our, our, our lovers in some case, for our, our friends for our family, our colleagues who have yet to find in Jesus the heart of God for our world and for them. Would you make something truly splendorous and lovely of them 
Not that any of us deserve it, but because as the master potter, you can craft loveliness from the dust. You've done it before. In fact, you've done it countless times. Lord, do it again. We pray it for Jesus' glory. Amen.